damned if the same politicians who refused to act then are going to try to come back today. The real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. A system of justice will be the richer for diversity of background and experience. Hello. Hello. Can I hear it? Yeah, you have to speak up loudly. Hello. Yay. Okay. She's a woman. <laughs> Hello, everybody. It's me, Miss Cracker, and it's time for She's a Woman. It's a podcast for every human being who looks into the mirror and says she's a woman. And for the people that love them. Every week, we talk to incredible women of all kinds from all walks of life and invite them to share their stories with you, our incredible listeners. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. Hello, Caitlin. Hello. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm kind of tired. I'm really tired. Yeah, I could use some more coffee. I want some more coffee, too. Also, it doesn't help that it's been, um, like, raining every single day, all day, for, like, four whole days. Cloudy and cold, also. But anyway, I'm really excited about today's episode, because we have a guest that I know well. We used to work together at the Studio Museum in Harlem. How many years have you known her? Uh, it's been since 2012. Wow. So it's been eight years That's a whole elementary schooler. That's a whole elementary schooler of life. (laughs) She ran the social media for the Studio Museum, and I was doing grant writing. So um, now we've both escaped into the big world, and it's going to be exciting to talk about Mm -hmm. everything that she's done, because she's done a lot. Um, But first, as you know, we don't like to dive into our interviews right away. We like to start every episode with a little segment that I like to call... Here's the good news. And today we have a very, very special good news story. I don't know this one. You don't know this one? I don't know what it's going to be. Okay. So, you know I was born in 1984, which is the year of the rat. Oh. Right? And you know that my nickname in my family is Rat. Do people know that? Uh, it's they true. They know it now. Now they know. Yeah. It's true. They call me Rat because I have, I have sleek brown fur. Beady eyes. And beady eyes, and of course, uh, cracker teeth. You know, I have the. Oh, and a strong nose for (laughs) sniffing. Yeah, I don't have any whiskers, though. That's yeah, the only thing yeah. I'm missing. But yeah, I have all of these things. And so they call me rat in my family, which is like, it sounds like it's mean, but it's okay because <laughs> I'm basically, I'm obsessed with rats. I even like the rats in the uh, New York City sewers because I think they have so much personality. They do. I mean, did you see that story about that guy that fell like <laughs> through a hole in the ground and he said he couldn't cry for help? Because he was afraid a rat would go in his mouth. There were so many rats. That that would not upset you. That would please you. <laughs> no, you're the, I do have lines. Okay, I, I was do like, have lines. I but we're not talking about those yeah, scary okay. rats oh, today. Yeah, okay? it's good news. It's good, good news. news. <laughs> we're talking about a role model rodent that Aww. every rodent should be able oh. to look up to. Okay, this rodent's name is Magawa. He's a five-year-old African giant pouched rat who lives. He's in Cambodia. He has a pouch. Really? Like a kangaroo? Yeah. Aww. Oh, that's almost... I just said yeah, but I'm assuming. Oh, oh, okay. I don't know where his pouch is. Okay. He's a five-year-old African giant pouch rat who lives in Cambodia, and he just got a medal of honor because he's literally a rodent 
hero. You see, Magawa isn't just a regular rat. His life is dedicated to changing the world and saving lives by sniffing out dangerous landmines in his home country. Aww. According to the New York Times, Magawa has discovered 39 landmines and 28 pieces of unexploded stuff um, and helped clear more than 1.5 million square feet of land over the past... I was thought that was going to be miles, but it's a rodent here. 1.5 million square feet oh, of land over I the mean, past four years. That's still a lot. That's of, still a lot of stuff. Yeah, he's been busy. He's been a really busy guy. Uh, so basically, he's been out there risking his life since he was one years old to help Aww. find bombs in the end. Okay, this is. I'm gonna do a. Um, I'm gonna pull an Ashley Flowers here, and we're gonna look up Magawa the rat. And look at him. Oh, he is so cute. <laughs> If you guys are listening to this now, you can go to She's a Woman podcast and see pictures of this pouched rat. And he is his long whiskers and the most adorable little face. He is really cute. And here he is in his medal. Oh, it's a <laughs> tiny rat size medal. <laughs> he's wearing his oh medal. Oh my God, he's saving lives. He's oh, literally at- saving lives. Anyway, he was finally recognized for his hard work uh, with this medal that he's wearing. It's a gold medal from the People's Dispensary for Sick Animals, which is a British charity. And I think this is such an, an amazing story. If your heart isn't fully exploding for this rodent uh, right now, you should go and look at the pictures of him because he is so cute. And he has a precious little face and tiny little hands. I hope he never takes his medal off. <laughs> I know. He should wear it with pride. <laughs> right. Magawa is just one of many rodent heroes. Not only is there an army of bomb-sniffing rats just like him, there are also rats trained to sniff out tuberculosis. Their noses are so sensitive they can smell the bacteria that causes tuberculosis just by putting their whiskers near a spit sample. And I think that it's so important that we look at everything that animals can do because it reminds us that they're not just to look at, they are our allies in They're the world. They're very smart and talented. Yes, yeah. they are. And if when we're protecting animals, we're not just protecting animals for their own sake, but for our sake, too. We don't know what amazing things we could do as a team together. That's right. Yeah. Wow. So every time an animal goes extinct, we're basically losing a friend. That's very true. <laughs> I'm stressed about it now, thinking about it. <laughs> anyway, though. I could talk about this rodent all day long, but I want to get into our interview. Everybody, I am very excited to have Kimberly Drew join us. Uh, Kimberly Drew is an art curator and writer who champions the voices of Black artists. She has been the social media manager for major museums, including the Met and the Studio Museum in Harlem, where we both worked. Uh, But she is very known for her use of the social media handle Museum Mammy and for her groundbreaking Tumblr, Black Contemporary Art. And she uses those platforms to show the world the incredible works that Black artists contribute all the time. Um, She has released her first book, This Is What I Know About Art. Um, It came out in June this year. So Kimberly Drew, welcome to She's a Woman. How are you doing today? I'm so good. It's so good to hear your voice. I'm so thrilled to be on the show. Yay. 
<laughs> You're one of our first guests. So I'm really, I'm really glad that we're going to be like launching this with you. So Kimberly, you wrote about this in your book a little bit, but I just kind of wanted to hear you talk about it. Um, when did you first discover your passion for art, particularly um, art by black artists? Yeah. Um, so it's an interesting story. And for me, it's one that really starts growing up in New Jersey. So I always had access in some way or another to the New York kind of cultural imprint. Um, New Jersey has its own, you know, set of cultural institutions. I grew up going to the Montclair Art Museum, the Newark Art Museum. Um, but it wasn't until I was in college, actually, that I really kind of had my awakening moment. Like I'd always known that I love to go to museums, but it wasn't until everything was kind of like aligned that I started to realize that that's where I wanted to work. And then I found myself at the studio museum as an intern and everything just kind of clicked for me. Um, but it is quite interesting because I definitely was a kid who grew up knowing that I loved art, but I think by virtue of kind of cultural background and socioeconomic background, it wasn't really something that felt like a, a viable career option. I always thought that I needed to be a doctor or, you know, something that was a traditional pathway towards like a financial, a level of financial success. So you, you realized that you um, had this affinity for black artists and that there were so many that were not represented. And I think that's what came out of your college career and your time at the studio museum. And out of that, came your Tumblr, right? Black Contemporary Art. Is that where it came from? Yeah, for sure. Um, let's see. Well, I think, you know, you know as well from your time at the Studio Museum, there isn't a day that goes by that you're not being introduced to some artists that you didn't know about, whether that's right. someone who's, you know, up and coming or, you know, the, the great figures that have been, you know, everlasting for all time. Um, but I think my first, I, I would say like combined year or so, you know, really knowing this, that this institution existed and really starting to immerse myself in the art, I was naturally drawn to, of course, artists and artworks that reflected my own experience. And so I think it's really important to couch any of the work that I do in relationship to Black art and Black culture in that, like, I am a Black person. And so I want to go into these cultural institutions in some ways um, and find the artworks or figures or programming that really feels like it's representative of myself. I feel like museums at their best are when they can pivot and expand and really wrap their arms around the breadth of constituents that they can possibly have. Um, yeah. And for me, I had that kind of coming into myself at the Studio Museum. And when I went back, I, was, I studied at Smith College for my undergraduate degree. And I left Studio Museum and was like, this is where I want to be. This is the kind of space I need to be in. And so I'm going to immerse myself in our history classes. I was taking three, three classes a semester and did not learn about a single Black artist in the last, like my first semester back at school. And I, that, that winter, reached out to our good friend Marcellus and was like, I'm going to start this blog because I want to, I just, I need to continue to learn about these artists. And I also don't want to forget the ones that I had kind of been introduced to during my summer internship. I feel like one of the main things about Black contemporary art, first of all, it is it traces your journey of learning about Black artists, but it also creates a platform for representation. We don't see Black artists uh, represented in galleries and in museums. Is that one of the things that you were thinking about was not only tracking your learning, but teaching other people too? 
Yeah. I mean, I think as with anything, I think you can probably relate to this as well. There's so many things that we do that start as just like a personal interest or passion. You know, it's like you start to ask yourself questions about how you want to exist in the world. And for me, I was like, okay, I had this incredible experience at this museum. And so I want to build something that I was really looking for because I had, you know, spent my however many weeks at the museum, came back to school, started studying, didn't see any of the artists that got me into what I wanted to do. And so I built this kind of archival tool, not thinking that it was going to like become the thing that became my life and my structure. Like I'm sure the first time you put on a wig, you're like, okay, let's see how this goes. Um, (laughs) As with anything, which I feel like is so important and like so valuable from both of our perspectives of people who have like built a career around what we love to do and as soul sucking as it can become um, is that like, it really does start with a simple idea And so it was really, it was really that. And then it became like, oh, okay, I can engage in dialogue with other people. I can build this like universe um, of conversations and, and, you know, potentials for engagement. But it really started with one post. And I, when I got my first hundred followers, I did not expect any, any more. And now it's been nearly a decade and it's become this completely different thing. But I feel like for me, as I am coming up to this, like, important landmark point the thing I always want to drive home to anyone who is curious is that it really started with one post it started with zero resources like actually Marcellus I asked him to do the blog with me he said no and I I did it on my own so there's so many there's so much to say for like oh great it's become this thing but also I think for anyone who's out there and wants to in some way pivot towards the thing that they're curious about I feel like in this COVID moment like the only thing that we have securely is our curiosity. And so I think, you know, that's, that's what I hope is a takeaway. But for me, yeah, it was like, I need a space to learn. I need a space to take back some agency because this art history program at my college, like there was no chance that I was going to learn about a really, truly diverse set of artists. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Okay. We're back. You know, Another interesting thing about your story is that you didn't start until college really finding what your passion is. I think there's a pressure on young people to know from the get-go what they want to be and that there's a shame in not figuring it out until later. And I think that your story shows that you can change your mind at any time and discover who you want to be. I think it's so true. I mean, I think that the internet has in some ways really spoiled us because we see folks who are coming into a sense of themselves at a younger younger and younger kind of point in their lives and or careers. Um, And I think that the thing at the end of the day is like when you're looking at the larger chronology of your life, you just hope that you find the thing that makes you want to move and do and be. And that doesn't always have to align with the way that you make your living. Um, But I think it's important to really take yourself seriously and cherish the things that help you navigate the world with some sense of hope and maybe even joy. Um, And I feel like for me, I, I feel very fortunate because I came into that at 20 and then built my entire life around like getting excessively good at it as a thing that I love to do. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I think, I think it it really is like to each their own. Like I think of Yara Shahidi all the time where like Yara actually scares the crap out of me because she's so articulate and so self-aware and has been over like the last five years that I've kind of witnessed her and or has known her as a friend. 
but that's not everyone's story. I think that some, sometimes we can come into ourselves clumsily, but the thing at the end of it, sorry, I have a cat. Um, but the we thing at the that. end of the day is that we, you know, it's like deep lesbian culture. Um, but at the end of the day, the hope is that you come into some, yeah, some sense of security. Um, yeah. because that's the point, you know? Yeah. So you found the, the visual arts, you found art, um, and you, develop this passion for championing black artists and this is this is what i wanted to talk to you about as far as activism we're living in a time where people are out on the streets demanding change declaring that black lives matter isn't that more urgent than getting black artists into museums or representing black artists like is it really important here i am pretending that i don't believe it is like is it really is it really important yeah is it really like is it really important is that a priority like why is that a priority it's just museums you know they're dusty anyway well i mean i'm curious from your standpoint too because i think that there's there's so many different kind of um tracks uh, let's say of existence that i think are really important to talk about when we're talking about art so yeah. it's like there's a practitioner and then there's the institutions and then there's all these other kind of like systems and like this rhizomatic kind of cacophonous clusterfuck that really comes together to build what is kind of understood widely as the art world but i think when it comes to especially a moment like this one of uprising on one level it's so incredibly important to think about the role of artists because it is the work of artists and designers that help people to either communicate what they want to say, right? So it's like right. these beautiful protest posters that are being made and people are sharing online, or it's like the flyer to tell people where to go. And then it's thinking about the flows and how to coordinate and get maybe permits or, you know, what happens, you know, when you don't get a permit and you actually do go out and like in this completely renegade moment, there's so much artfulness and creative energy that goes into corralling people and keeping them safe. Um, and right. so I think that that's, that's one thing. And then separately, institutions are, I think, in this moment of pulling at strings, trying to figure out how to remain flexible and how to keep their doors open, quite frankly, with the in- impact of COVID, um, to really participate in this moment. Um, yeah. you see some museums like in, there's this museum that I'm going to forget the name of now, but Sarah O'Keefe, who, um, is this incredible curator, organized a print sale, or you see a curator like Meg Only, who's doing, uh, print sales, benefiting the Philly Bailout Fund. Um, there's so many ways that people who are in, like, even work institutions or work side institutions are thinking about how to rally and support, but right. it's so, I mean, I'm sure you know, too, it's just such a... I'm so worried in general about how we move forward from this moment and the least of it has to do with race because then when that gets tossed on top of it, it's all just like unwieldy. But yeah, we're, we're in a, we're in a moment. (laughs) Yeah. We're in in, in a really wild moment, but it's also a moment for an, hopefully it's an opportunity for real change because everything has been shaken up so much. Speaking of real change, I wanted to ask you about this moment that you wrote about in your book. For all those who are not aware, there's a huge exhibition, one of the biggest uh, events of the art calendar. It's called the Whitney Biennial. And in 2014, they featured 
nine Black artists out of 103 total artists. And you, Kimberly Drew, you spoke out, you say, in, in anger about this real injustice. And I, wanted, I wondered if you could talk about that moment where you were engaging with trying to make change. It's so wild to think about, because were you, were you, you were still at Studio Museum in that moment, right? That's right, yeah. Oh my God, it was the worst time of my professional career. Um, and I'm so thankful for your friendship um, because it was not a shining moment. But it's so interesting when thinking about the world as it exists right now, because it's like what I did then was a completely not radical thing. Basically, yeah. I, I, I spoke out because I was just like, this is, this is so messed up that you have this exhibition that's mounted every two years. It's like the Oscars in some ways of the art world or, right. you know, like, Everything sort of like what the Venice Biennale does is like the Olympics of the world of art. And you see, I, I think at its best, that exhibition always should be a reflection of the times. And when you have a show, not only that only has nine Black artists, but maybe like less than 20 artists of color in general, um, it, it really does make you call into question, like, what are the kind of curatorial goals? And what ways should museums be responding to, you know, contemporary moments? And so it was a really complicated moment. And I think it's a watershed moment for a time like this one where there's this momentum where folks are really, truly pushing back. And either, you know, from the standpoint of someone who has worked somewhere or as a constituent and saying, we really need institutions to do better. We really need institutions to serve us. And we are not going to tolerate anything less which felt impossible in 2014 to say, which is why I almost lost my job when I did speak out. But um, I think in this moment, we're seeing more, hopefully more momentum where people are just calling, calling the card on accountability because it's not, it's not disruptive behavior. It's just saying like, look, we need more. That's it. So uh, I've talked about this with you before, but I, love hearing you talk about it. And I think it's something really important for our listeners to hear, which is um, what do you think are some great institutions that are sort of leading the way in fixing this inequity in really uh, representing artists of color and representing um, black artists in particular? Well, I think that there is potential for every institution to look at the way that they're doing the work that they do in relationship to um, uplifting more a more diverse set of voices. Because um, I think that that's principally the most important thing is that you're making sure that the work or the programming that you're doing is representative of as vast of a set of people as possible. So that means engaging with Native people. That means engaging with Latinx people. That means engaging with disabled folks. And all those intersections in between, I think it's always so important for anyone who's doing anything programmatic on a curatorial level or, you know, whatever level to really make those considerations. Some of the places that I see that done really well, um, I think that BAM is really great in in Brooklyn, Um, obviously the Studio Museum in Harlem, the Underground Museum in Los Angeles, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles as well. I also wonder... In this moment, what do we do to support institutions like that? What are some mm-hmm. ways you rec- recommend to engage? I would say that if there's a museum that you really love to consider getting a membership, like that's the lowest level of entry. Sometimes memberships start at $30 a year 
um, I think that's a really easy way to get engaged. And then you sign up for the newsletter and see what kind of programming they have going on in the interim. And then otherwise, I mean, I think it just depends on what kind of resource that you have. Continuing to post about museums and museums exhibitions and going to online programming is so important and valuable as well. So those are, yeah, I think those are two, I mean, those are two things that I've been doing. <laughs> just kind yeah. of like rubbing crystals and being helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rubbing crystals and being helpful. Yeah, that is, I mean, for not just for museums, but for literally anything that has doors that can be open, we are realizing that they can be closed. So right. um, yeah, we've got to do that for everything that we love. Let's say you're a listener that doesn't know any Black artists at all, and they want to fix it, what would you recommend as a really good place to start? I mean, I think following the cultural institutions that we were just talking about. Yeah. Um, I mean, now it's so much easier. I'm like, you can literally just Google artists. Like, I think algorithmically, yeah. you can start with Carrie James Marshall, who's obviously super famous, Kehinde Wiley, um, Amy Sherald, uh, the, those two painters having done the presidential portraits of the Obamas. But I think it's really just like, if you want to learn, set aside the time, the resources are there. I think increasingly so in a moment like this, but there, I mean, I've, I have a blog called Black Contemporary Art. That's a great resource. And yeah, don't be afraid. I mean, I think that the, the biggest thing overall is that sometimes people worry that they might not be smart enough or they might not know enough or they might not be creative enough. Like the list of reasons not to engage can be so long, but at the end of the day, the best thing about museums, the best thing about art and creativity, like anything else, is that it is really, it's activated by your curiosity. It's activated by engagement in the same way that like a stew doesn't become a stew until you mix all the ingredients together. And right, yeah, it, it, yeah. And so it's that. So it's just like, you know, get in there, like spend, you know, 20 minutes, Google, 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 all, yeah. also search, also search, you know, and find yourself, you know, yeah, just find find yourself at a point where you know that you've taken a chance on it. Because I think at the end of the day, that's the thing that that's the most important. Don't let don't let yourself stop yourself. Yeah, that reminds me of a quote you quoted Felix Gonzalez Torres in your book, saying that yeah, okay, I could have an academic in an armchair look at my work, but I also want someone who watches Golden Girls and sits in a Lazy Boy, just a regular person to be to engage with my work. So he, he was essentially saying what I think people don't know about a lot of contemporary artists is like they want you to be included and they're like leaving breadcrumbs so that you can be involved no matter who you are. Because at the end of the day, they're, cre I mean, they're people just like you, you know? And there's so many themes and so many ways and so many artists that you'll absolutely fucking hate and maybe you won't understand and that's okay. You know, like right. that isn't in any way a reflection of your intelligence or your worthiness of that space. Yeah. Everything isn't great. And the, the task at hand is really to find the thing that you think is great. The thing that really motivates you to leave your home or to leave your comfort zone or to, you know, really buckle down and continue to engage and engage and engage. I don't know. It's, it's so it's so strange. I'm curious for you, too. Like, how did you find yourself? Because I don't actually think I know this, how you ended up in the arts. How do I end up in the arts? Well, I was, <laughs> I thought I was going to be a poet. <laughs> I thought I was oh. going to be a wonderful poet. So um, obviously while I was doing that, I had to do something to earn money. So um, I wrote for a newspaper called the Brooklyn Rail and they were like, great, you're on the arts beat. So... <laughs> 
I had to, um, from knowing almost nothing, like I had that moment that you had where they're like, okay, write about Jasper Johns. And I was like, who? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and then everyone stares at you. I think you wrote about that a little bit in your book. They're like, what do you mean who? And you're like, oh, I better stay up late tonight and Google search. And I just, I went to my first gallery in New York. This is like a couple of weeks after moving to New York and saw an exhibition by Tavares Strawn. And I just remember being blown away by the experience of the gallery. I'm like, I feel like I'm alone with this artist. And that's when I fell in love. And after that, I sort of wanted everybody else to have that experience too. And Mm -hmm. I started thinking about what got in the way. And what got in the way often was uh, museums are expensive. um, And there's a lot of big words in the, in the captions, you know what I mean? Like just really basic things um, that were getting in people's way and making them feel afraid of art. And I was like, how can I write about art in a way that makes people feel like they can just go engage with it? Like they would with a playground. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's so nice to be talking to you about it because it, 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 our stories are so similar in that way where it's like, you, you don't know until you know. And right that's that's the baseline thing and for me I didn't come into an awareness of a life built around art in the way that that my life is now until I had my first internship and that happened midway through college and I ended up having to spend the last two years of my college experience cramming an art history major in between every other extracurricular activity and all these things that made me feel like a valuable person in the world. And I wrote the book really explicitly for young adults because I wanted for more young people to be encouraged and to have more insight into what it means to work in the arts because I just didn't have that many examples, much less examples that of people who looked like me, you know? Right. Um, because we don't really have very many curators who are household names or directors who are household names um and now we only have them because they're like terrible and so Uh how you know how can we build like a an entryway and so that's that's how the book really came to be all right we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be right back okay we're back do you think i was thinking about this while you were talking about your childhood do you think that you would have been able to engage more with museums and the arts as a young person if there had been actual representation of people like you, people with stories like yours in museums and galleries? Um, I would say in general, yes. I definitely was exposed to Black artists because I grew up outside of North New Jersey where there's like a really amazing Black art scene. But I didn't really realize how... I didn't realize what it was until I looked back and was like, oh, these are historic galleries that have existed since the 70s and were born after the North riots and this real interest in a Black cultural identity. Um, But I think in general, so many young people that I interact with, it's learning about those artists that really tap into something that they really love about themselves or about their own lineage or are curious about. Um, But I think that those bridges can't be undersold or underestimated. And I think that that pursuit is one that's really valuable and is under-recognized because so much of art history as a discourse is like knowing the great and, you know, the Da Vinci's and the Picasso's and, you know, having gone to the Louvre to see the Mona Lisa, like that's not 
that's not it. It, it, it can be so much more. It can really be however you want it to be. Right. But for me, really distinctly, I grew up going to museums, but I always thought I had to be a visitor. I didn't realize that I could be yeah. a person who was really moving and shaking and shaping the way that things are displayed. Yeah. I'm still shook by that. So what I want to know is like, what is next for you? Is there another book? Is there another adventure? What are you What are you stewing with and planning on right now? Yeah, so I have another book that's coming out in a month. Oh wow! Called the Black Futures Book. Yeah. <laughs> so I will continue to terrorize the world with my publication. Yeah. Um, so I have a book called Black Futures that I've been working on with Jenna Wortham at the Times, and it is really centered around the question: What does it mean to be black and alive right now? Um, and the book includes a whole set of different things. We have essays, conversations, some family recipes, which I'm really happy to have in the book, song lyrics, um, some really incredible interviews, but it's kind of this compendium and collection of Black voices in this moment because so much of, I think, a Black cultural conscience has been really like in a Renaissance moment. And a lot of that has happened digitally. And Jenna and I both were really concerned about our ability to preserve things digitally. And so we came together to build this book that is just the beginning of what we hope will be and be a wellspring for others to continue to collect as well. But yeah. all of our things, we have to hold them dearly. Um, and I think we're seeing more and more the impact of social media and digital communications. And so we made this physical offering um, as a guidepost for others who want to be a part of cultural preservation. That's so amazing. And I'm going to get a copy of the book and I would recommend um, for any of the listeners that uh, haven't read This Is What I Know About Art, before you get to Black Futures, uh, buy the book. Don't be afraid. Just uh, Mm -hmm. read this book about permission um, to engage with art, permission to to really love art. Um, And I I can't wait to... uh, post about Black Futures when it comes out on our She's a Woman podcast Instagram, um, where you can find yes. We're going to share some of uh, Kimberly Drew's uh, favorite works and some of her achievements on the She's a Woman podcast Instagram um, when this is released. So I'm very excited about that. And uh, I want to thank you so much, uh, Miss Drew, for joining us and your cat. What's your cat's name? This is Maggie. Oh my goodness. She's a woman. (laughs) She's a woman. (laughs) Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. And uh, I thank you so much for having me. I'm such a fan. I'm so proud of you. And I'm so thankful to have had some interlap in our professional journeys. Keep inspiring others to continue to excel and to trust themselves. I think watching you over these years of our friendship has been one of the greatest joys and I um, was just revisiting earlier seasons of Drag Race and thinking about going and seeing you perform and then getting to see you on the show anything is possible um, with commitment and hard work and you're such a representative of that and I love you so so much I adore you Kimberly Drew thank you thank you and it's been amazing watching you grow too I had a really good time on that interview with Kimberly yeah, she's very smart. She's so smart. It's just like it's like attending a really great art lecture, which you guys got for absolutely free. You're welcome. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I guess that's our podcast for today. Kimberly Drew and a giant rodent, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a good team. Multitudes. Uh, yeah, multitudes know? of yeah. giant rodents. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Takes all kinds. 
<laughs> um, so I guess we should say, uh, make sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate it and review it. We love reviews. In fact, we love them so much. We're going to read some of our favorite reviews right here at the end of every podcast starting in 2021. This podcast was produced by Caitlin and then I did it. The cast includes me and also Caitlin, and it is distributed by the amazing Studio 71. So thank you for joining us today and make sure you tune in next Monday for another exciting episode of the podcast. And remember, if you ever feel down, all you have to do is look in the mirror and say, she's a woman and I'll be with you. Not in a creepy way. Not in a creepy way. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.